Greetings and welcome back to The Dive, the weekly podcast in which we examine issues brought up in the previous week's Daf Yomi study and we take a look at greater in greater depth. Uh, this is the second of a two-part series. My name is Yitzchak Et Shalom and we're taking a look at the sugya of Kol Homer David Chata Eno uh, and broadly looking at issues of Agadah, I'd like to turn your attention back to the first page of the handout, um, just to look at a couple things about the literary context of our sugya uh, writ large, meaning the whole Rabbi Shmuel series that we uh, that we looked at last week. Uh, and keep in mind that, as I mentioned last week, it begins with the Mishnah. This is touches on the whole issue of the uh, inclusion of Agadot in the Talmud Bavli and why they are where they are and how they link together is that the Mishnah talking about what animals are allowed to wear on Shabbat in public and not considered caring said that um, they're not allowed to have a ribbon which is simply for decoration between their horns and it mentioned that Rabbi Lazar and Azari was very very wealthy had his cow went out that way on Shabbat Chachamim Chachamim were opposed and the Gemara immediately attacks it and says, what do you mean? He had 10,000 uh, calves taken each year as maser behemah, meaning he had a huge flock and a huge herd because he was very wealthy. So to speak about his cow in the singular doesn't make sense. And the Gemara then says he had a neighbor who had a cow like that. And because he had the ability to rebuke her and to stop her and didn't do so, it's considered to be his sin. And then it goes into a discussion about the liability of leaders for the uh, improper activities of people that they have uh, control over that they could successfully rebuke. And that led to our discussion, and we can see what the connection is, uh, because the the second of the series, um, which is B'nai Eli Chatu, comes up with an interesting conclusion, which is to say that Chofni really was the one who was sinning, but because Pinchas, his brother, uh, had the opportunity to rebuke him and didn't do so, and you can see it in the highlighted in blue section, So it's as if Pinchas himself also sinned because he didn't rebuke him. And then in the second to last of our series, which is the issue of Shlomo, we have Amar of Yudah, Amar Shmuel in the black line in the middle of that uh, section of source one, uh, towards the bottom. Amar Shmuel, Mishashen Asash Shlomot Bat Paruch Nitzelo Elaf Minei Zemer from Ralo Kach Osin Lavodah Zara Plonit Kach Osin Lavodah Zara Plonit. So when Shlomo married Pharaoh's daughter, which is one of the lowlights of that entire um, uh, piece. Uh, which happens in, in Paragimel and Malachim, but then it comes back in Parakir Aleph when the description of his marrying all of the foreign women shows up. Uh, when he married Bat Paro, she brought a thousand different kinds of uh, musical instruments or instrumentalists in and said, this is how we play for that of Zara, this is how we play for that of Zara, and Shlomo did not rebuke her, and that's part of the whole defense that Shlomo didn't really sin, but rather because his wives... His foreign wives did Abu Dazaran, he didn't rebuke them, and it's considered as if he sinned. Okay, so that's just as far as the context of how this sugya gets in. But let, now let's take a look at the sugya itself on page uh, seven. We'll, we'll take a look at the uh, particular sugya, which is about David, and we'll 
take a look at it and see how it plays out. In last week's session, we spent most of the time studying the story itself of David, Batsheva, Uriah, Yoav, um, and uh, and the war against Ammon, and um, everything that transpired. We also looked at Perak Nun Aleph and Tehillim, in which David begs forgiveness for God, from from God, and uh, and, reco- and and pleads with God to cleanse him, etc. After his sin with Batsheva, uh, we also noted that in Natan's rebuke of David with the famous Mashal Kivsat Harash, the parable of the poor man's you, the issue seemed to be that he had Uriah killed and then took his wife, as if to say that David uh, saw a wife of one of his colonels who he desired, so he had her husband knocked off and then took the wife, but not the adultery issue. But then at the end, there's a, a dig in there in which he said, that the son that she bore to you uh, will die, which means that there are no secrets here. Uh, but, the, but that issue of the adultery kind of fading into the background and the killing of Uriah seeming to take the central place uh, is, is critical here, and it's part of the important background for understanding our sugya. So let's go take a look at the sugya, source 9 on page 7. Amar Rabbi Shmuel Barachmani, Amar Rabbi Yonatan. And again, in last week's shiur, we looked at these two characters, Rabbi Yonatan and his student, Rabbi Shmuel Barachmani, and many of the sayings that uh, Shmuel Barachmani has quoting Rabbi Yonatan. We only saw one that he made independently in our series, uh, and we saw that Rishwam Bar Nachmani, quoting Rabbi Yonatan, was also engaged in polemics against the early Christians, which is going to play a role in one possible approach to understanding this sugya. Okay. Kol Homer David Chata Eno Ela To'eh. So anyone who says David sinned is not but mistaken. Shneemar, Vayhi David Lechold Rachav Maskil Vadunayimo. That David, in all of his ways, was maskil, was successful, and Hashem was with him. Now, what's problematic about this verse, remember, we, we saw in the pattern of this that the Yonatan says, anybody who says X sinned is mistaken, and then quotes a pasuk that supports the idea that they were wholesome or perfect. This pasuk that says Hashem is with David is a pasuk that is referencing David's time as a young single man who is the, um, the weapons carrier for Shaul back in Shmuel Aleph, as opposed to now. So what's to prevent us from saying, good, that's a description of David back then, but subsequently he sinned. So the Gemara, the comment is, Efshar bali Is it possible that a ter- such a terrible sin would happen to him, meaning that he would be guilty of such sin and God is with him? So there's clearly several problems with this. One is, as I mentioned, the issue of chronology. That, so David, uh, God was with David much earlier in his life, and then he sinned, and God left him, maybe. The second possibility is to say, who's to say that God won't be with somebody who did commit a sin? And maybe the person does tshuva, right? And, uh, and so the, 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 as a proof text, it's kind of difficult. What the claim seems to be, at least building on this, is how could God ever be with somebody who would even have it in their capability of doing such a heinous crime, perhaps. So notice that the countertext, meaning the one that they're using to prove that David did sin and that we now have to defend, is not from the narrative that describes him taking Bathsheba and having Uriah killed, but rather from the words of Natan to David in the rebuke, 
when he said, why did you degrade the word of Hashem to do that which was evil? And the, and the drasha is, shibikesh la'asot velo asat, meaning, and so we're going to pick up on a nuance here, uh, as we'll see it in one moment in Rebbe's name, that David wanted to do something bad, but ended up not doing something bad. And we'll see what kind of piece that is, which means, by the way, we're already backpedaling a little bit and saying, yes, David did something wrong. He intended to do a sin, but somehow on a technical level, he didn't actually violate the law. Let's see how that works. Amarav. Now, Rav comes along at roughly the same time as Rabbi Yonatan in Bavel, and he says, Rebbe da'ati mi David, mahapech v'daresh b'schutei de David. Rebbe Yudanasi was a descendant of David. Rebbe was a seventh generation back to Hillel, son, father, and Hillel uh, claimed lineage that went back to the Davidic line, which is part of the whole Midrashic development of of David's seed continuing to be the leaders among Israel even uh, after there's no more monarchy. And he says, Rebbe that comes from the house of David would turn things around and darshan in order to exonerate and support David. In other words, Rebbe would play with Tsukim in order to have David come out in the best light possible. And Rav is saying this as a critique, as we'll see. So this is the background for the drashah that we just saw. This evil is different than all the other evils that we read about. All the other ones say he did. Here it says, meaning that in other cases it'll say, why did you do a bad thing? Here it says, why did you do something? Why did you degrade God to do something bad? And the drushes should be kesh la'asot asad that God, that he wanted to do something bad, but he didn't do it. We're going to see what that means a little bit later on. And then, going further in Natan's rebuke, at Uriah hachiti hikita v'cherev, which read simply in the text, is the damning statement, you had Uriah killed, and then the explanation is, you used the Bnei Amon to do it. Shayalacha l'dunom b'sanhedrin v'lodanta. And so the take is, you did something wrong by having him killed because you should have taken him to the Sanhedrin and had him killed. We'll see why. And then you took his wife as a, as a wife. And again, that's part of the rebuke. But in the drashai, it's likuchin which means the Kiddushan are legitimate. We have to see why they wouldn't be legitimate and why they are legitimate. <coughs> and now let's see the background for all of this. Here we go back to Rabbi Yonatan. Anybody who would go out to the wars of David would immediately write, before going out, a get for their wife. And the concern was that if they are missing in action, they don't want their wife to be an aguna. And so therefore they would write a get. But the get was written, and this is a discussion in, in uh, Masachek Tubot, um, about how the get was written. Was it formulated as a condition? If I don't return by date X, or if I don't return from the war, then retroactively this get is valid. But the point is that it was a retroactive get, which would mean then, therefore, that when Uriah never made it back home, because you remember in the story, he refused to go back to his house, and then he was killed in war. That means retroactively from the time he went to war, Bathsheba was divorced, and therefore David slept with a single woman. 
Shinamar, what's the proof text for the idea that they would write a get? Now this goes back to the war of Shaul's men when they're going to war against Goliath, the famous battle against Goliath. And remember, David was not originally there. David is young and he's a shepherd. And his father then sent him with some uh, with a care package, basically, for his older brothers who were at the front. And he said, take these 10 uh, curds of cheese and bring them to the, um, to the, the officer who's in charge. And go see if your brothers are okay. And take their pledge. A simple read of that means bring something back that proves that they're okay. But what's the drasha? My arubatam, arubatam la'arov, things to mix together. Things that are mixed between the two of them, which means what we're picturing is that David's eldest brothers are already married. David's eldest brothers already went out to battle against the police team, which was, of course, a standoff for 40 days till anybody did anything. And they had somehow forgotten to do the proper protocol, which is to write a get for their wives. This is not Beit David, by the way, it's Beit Shaul. But they had forgotten, so David went to go collect the gitim from them and bring them back so the wives would be divorced. Now, by the way, remember, David never actually comes back from that war because he stays and he kills Goliath, but that's not what, what concerns us here. All right, so now, that all provides this rabbinic position on understanding what happened in general in David's wars. And as a result of that, uh, when Uriah went to battle, he gave his wife such a get. Since he died before coming back, meaning he never got back home once he gave the get, retroactively the get is valid from the time he left. And therefore, David's uh, lying with Bathsheba is retroactively valid, which now explains the statement, meaning David actually intended to do something wrong. On the spot, what he did was a wrong thing, but as things worked out, he actually didn't do a wrong thing on a technical level. We'd all consider it to be heinous behavior. Nobody's questioning that, but it was not technically a wrong thing. Um... And then he goes, You had Uriah killed. This is still continuing the rebuke. You had Uriah killed with the sword of the Jordanians. And in reading the text, that comes out as a stronger piece of rebuke, is you use the enemy to kill him. Uh, but here, it, the drasha turns in the opposite direction. Just like you're not responsible, you're not punished for soldiers that die by the enemy's sword, because that's part of war, simply you won't be punished for Uriah, which, by the way, is interesting because that means that the killing of Uriah that David organized or coordinated is something that he's not culpable for, at which point the David's words, I sinned to God, and then Natan's statement, Hashem has accepted your and 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 he's overlooked your sin, but you're going to be punished. And here's the punishment: uh, you'll you'll uh, have four sons die, etc. Suddenly becomes kind of questionable: what's he being punished for? If all of this was correct, and so so now let's see why it is that that uh, that Uriah should have been killed in the Sanhedrin, and that David is therefore exonerated from having him killed this other way, even though he shouldn't have done it that way. My Tama, Moreid We talked about this last week. We hinted to it. Uriah 
was a rebel against the king. Why? When Uriah came back to David the first time and gave the report of the war, he referred to Yoav as his master. And the take here is that referring to Yoav as his master in front of David is a slight to David, therefore he's married by Malchut, and therefore he should have taken Uriah to the Sanhedrin and killed, but instead had him killed in war, so it's like a technicality. So in each case, both the sleeping with Bathsheba and the having Uriah killed were technically, were in the case of Bathsheba, Technically okay, but the intent was wrong. And in the case of Uriah, the intent was right, but the technicality was wrong, which is he should have had it done differently. Now, Amar Rav, remember Rav earlier was the one who said that Rebbe, because he's a descendant of David, would do everything he could to find a way to exonerate David. And there's a personal interest there. Rav now turns around and says, If you look carefully at the story of, of David, you'll find that he did nothing wrong except for the story of Uriah, which is in Malachim Aleph Perak Tedvav, when it talks about Asa, who was a descendant of David, who was one of the kings of Yehuda. Um, and Asa was, uh, was, uh, was a great king, and he followed in the ways of David, and David was great, that he had absolutely nothing wrong. Dechtiv, rak bidvar Uriah chiti. Just Uriah is the only is the only blemish on David's career. Now, there's several issues here. One issue is, does that mean Uriah and the whole story, meaning including Bathsheba, or just Uriah? And Bathsheba's an okay thing, and we, we're going to see why that becomes somewhat necessary in this thinking. And the second thing is, what about, for instance, the big census? Um, at the end of the story of uh, Shmuel. So Tulsa would ask that question here. We're not going to go into detail about it, but pointing out that this statement is also a little bit of an extravagant statement. Um, but we have another issue, which is not based on Sukim, but based on another rabbinic tradition, and that starts here. Abaye Kshisha. And we know the famous Abaye, uh, but this is a different Abaye, said, Rami uh, Rav Adarav. He identified a contradiction within Rav's words. Since when did Rav say that David's career was unblemished except for one event, which is Uriah? But Rav had another tradition where he said David accepted Lashon Hara. And there's a little bit more to that story, um, which, uh, which we see in Sanhedrin in Source 11. And we're going to take a look at that also. Uh, and so that means that David had other blemishes on his career. And the answer is kasha, which is, you're right, you found a contradiction in Rav's words, which means that according to this other tradition, Rav said there were other things that David did that were wrong, which, by the way, means, of course, our question about the census goes away. So let's take a look at that. Gufa, Rav Amarkibel David Lashon Hara. And I'm not going to go, because this is off of our topic, but just very quickly summarize what happened here is that, if you recall, um, David's best friend was Yonatan, Shaul's son. And uh, after uh, Shaul and Yonatan, they were all killed, uh, and David finally assumed the, uh, the, the, the full monarchy. He sought out to see if there were any descendants of uh, Shaul, specifically of Yonatan, that he, could that he could sort of rehabilitate or bring back into, not a leadership position, but in, at least into the royal court. Uh, in order to fulfill his oath to Yonatan and also to Shaul. And he found uh, a slave 
who was a prominent slave in Shaul's household, a fellow named Siva. And he asked him, is there anybody that says, yes, there's one boy. And in Shmuel, this boy is called Mephibosheth. And he's in a town in Jordan called Lodvar, because the family had fled to the other side of the Jordan. And so David summons and has Mephibosheth, Ben Yonatan, brought from Lodvar. And he says to Tziva, um, you are going to now take care of everything, restore all of uh, Shaul's holdings to Mephibosheth. And um, and um, so he grants Mephibosheth a land grant, and he has Mephibosheth be a regular member of his household, and he's fed there, and Mephibosheth is very thankful to David. Years later, when David flees Yerushalayim in order to, uh, to escape Avshalom, his own son, who's rebelling against him, um, Tziva, one last note, sorry, is that Mephibosheth was lame from a very young age. Uh, the story is in uh, Shmuel Bet Perak Dalad. And... So when David is running away from Yerushalayim, Tziva, that slave of Shaul, shows up, and David says to him, where's Mephibosheth? He said, oh, Mephibosheth, he's in Yerushalayim because he figures now he's going to get his kingdom back. And that was a lie. And David then turns to Tziva and says, okay, I'm tearing up my agreement. You can now have everything that I gave to him. When David returns after the death of Avshalom and returns to Yerushalayim, Mephibosheth shows up, and David says, where'd you go? He says, my servant fooled me and, uh, and left without me, and I couldn't go because I was lame, and I've been mourning ever since. He was dressed like a mourner ever since, and I'm just so happy you came back. And David says, well, of course, you get you know the half that I originally promised you. And Mephibosheth said, uh, I don't need anything as long as I see that you're back. It was At least the way it was presented, David was fooled, and David accepted the lie that Mephibosheth was plotting against him and changed the grant based on that and then changed it back when he found out that he was wrong. And so that's the Lashon Hara that, uh, that, that Rav is talking about. And uh, let's just take a look at one line at the end of this because it's instructive. Uh, in the second to last line of Source 9, so when David said to Mephibosheth, um, you and Siva will split the field, a bat kol came out, a heavenly voice came out and said that the kingdom is going to be split. And the kingdom split, of course, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, a great tragedy. And of course, what had started as a very promising monarchy, David and then Shlomo, turned out to be a, a sad, very small kingdom of Yehuda and the much bigger kingdom and more powerful kingdom of Israel to the north that was led by a different household, Yeravam, than other dynasties. Uh, and so that means that David's uh, interactions here were seen as having grave consequences, which now becomes part of this list of things that David did that we're not great about. And um, Rav says one other thing. I'm reviewed on my Rav. Had David never accepted, uh, believed that Lashon Hara, then the kingdom never would have been split. And therefore, what would have happened? We never would have done Avodah Zarah, which had its roots in the north. And then because of Achav's uh, daughter marrying a king of the south, it made its way to Yehuda. He would not have been exiled from our land. So all of our terrible troubles are all credited to that. Now, before we move on, 
what we see in this piece of the sugya, and it's not the whole sugya of David, but in this piece of the sugya is that the that the opening statement, Kol Amer David Chata which we're familiar with, and then we see the source text, the proof text, proving that David was uh, somebody of a pristine character, and then we defend against the rebuke again of Natan as saying, well, it's not as, so- as serious as it sounds. But then we have Rav's statement in the middle, which says, yeah, that's Rebbe, because Rebbe's trying to do everything he can to make David look good. And then La'asot instead of Asa, etc. And then what's the, why is it that what David did was not technically a violation, even though he wanted to violate because Batsheva retroactively was divorced uh, because, uh, because of this get kritut, etc.? And then we see Rav on his own actually take David in, in, into a different direction and add more things to him, including some things that are not explicit in the text, such as the split of the kingdom being being caused by that. Okay, keep that in mind because we've got to look at the entire picture. And if you recall, in last week's year, we saw that the same Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yonatan, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, quoting Rabbi Yonatan, said that uh, David was the one who really raised the bar for tshuva. And so, say, Kolamer David Chata, and then the whole issue of Tshuva, how they come together. Um, uh, and uh, and um, so, we, uh, so we see that, uh, that, that, that the issue is a lot more complex. To add to the complexity, look at source 10 and 11. They go together. And, uh, and we're going to see also about the nuances because. Bottom line, when somebody asks, what does the rabbinic tradition say about, and then fill in your blank, the answer is almost always going to be, it says a lot of things. And it's multivocal, and there's different approaches. As we see in this small sugya, there are at least two, if not three, distinct approaches to understanding David's behavior. And whether we want to exonerate it, or we motivated to exonerate it, or the opposite, uh, so let's take a look at another voice. In Tehillim Yudtet, which we're familiar with, we say it in Pesukah Zimmer on Shabbat and Yom Tov morning, HaShemayim Esapim Forel, towards the end of the parak, Shigiot Mi Yavin, the translation is there, Mi Nistarot Nakeni Gami Zedim Chasoch Avdecha Ali Meshluvi Az Eitam Viniketi Bipesharav. Okay? So there is a uh, interesting drasha about this. Darash Rab Dustoi Demin Beiri. David in this pasuk is like a guy in the shuk. We'll see what it means. Said, can anybody really understand errors? Meaning, can you forgive me just an error? God said, okay, I'll forgive it. And cleanse me from the things that are secretive that people don't know about. I'll forgive you that. Save me also from intentional crimes. And if they don't control me, then I'll be considered faultless. Etam from the word tam. What does that mean? I don't want the rabbis to be talking about it. I want it to be like cover-up. Now, by the way, notice the position here is not David didn't sin. The opposite. David sinned and sinned grievously. And David is asking God for a pass and for it to be covered up. And God's giving it to him. But the end of that pasuk is, I should be cleansed from a very serious, rebellious act. What is that? The drasha? I don't want the story to be written down at all. 
essentially to cut out Perak Yud Aleph and Perak Yud Bet, or part of Yud Bet, of Shmuel Bet. Amrolo Efshar. That said, God, that God says that I can't do. I can forgive you. I can try to protect it, but I can't leave it out. And he said, Yoshua, beautiful drasha. I took a yod away from Sarai and gave her a Sarah. That yod for years was complaining. When am I going to get back into somebody's name? Until Moshe took Hoshea and added the yod and made him Yoshua. Beautiful idea. But the note here is that uh, I can't erase something from posterity. So, you expect me to erase an entire story here? An entire parsha? can't happen. Okay, so now, there's now another take on this. He said, <coughs> I want you to totally forgive me for this sin. Now, by the way, notice the take. I sinned, and I want you to forgive me for this sin. Your son, Shlomo, which is a way that Chazal refer to Mishle, because in Chazal's take, the author of Mishle is part Shlomo, but part later. Take a look and pair of Chafe uh, of Mishle, Per Pasukal, if you'll see. But they always refer to it as Shlomo. But your own son Shlomo is going to say, Can a man uh, stoke coals and his clothes won't get burned? Can a man walk on coals and his legs won't get burned? Now notice the crime that they're accusing him of. Similarly, somebody who has relations with his friend's wife, this is all a mishle. You can't be cleansed. So this is straight up talking about the adultery. So um, that, am I really going to be lost for this? So God said, okay, accept upon yourself some affliction, and that will cleanse you. David accepted it. So David wants to be forgiven. He's willing to accept affliction. So what happened? David got sarat for six months. Now this is something we don't hear about anywhere in the text. So it's an interesting take is that we read a text that makes it clear, at least from a, from a literal sense, that David committed adultery and then had the husband killed, etc., and then there's an attempt to, at least on a technical level, to soft it, soften it. And here we have no mention in the text whatsoever it's about something bad about David. And then suddenly David has Sarat for six months. Now, is the Sarat for six months the, um, the affliction that he accepts? Or is it Sarat for accepting the Lashon Hara about, uh, from Tzivan? Good question. The Shechina left him, the Sanhedrin left him. How do we know? In that same parak of Tilim that we saw last week, 51, where he asked for forgiveness after the sin of Bacheva, he says, cleanse me with a hyssop and I'll be, and I'll be, um, and I'll be purified. Cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. So the allusion here is to tzarat, which is the color of snow, but the ezov is used in the tzarat's uh, purification ceremony. So how do we know that the shechina left him? In that same parak, he says, bring your spirit back. And the Sanhedrin left him because he says, I want you, those who fear you to return to me. 
How do you know that it was six months? And so in this next passage, they point out that it says that David was king for 40 years total, but it says he was king in Hebron for seven uh, for, for um, seven years and six months. And, uh, and so, therefore, seven years and six months plus 33 years is 40 years and six months. But it counts him as only 40 because they didn't count the six months that he was, was Mitzorah. Okay? Interesting because Uziahu was Mitzorah for a number of years towards the end of, until the end of his life. Uh, all those years were counted as king, years of being a king. Okay, so now we have another take that David says, forgive me for this sin. Now notice, in this Agadic section in Sanhedrin, David is just asking over and over to be forgiven for uh, for his sin, uh, and all sorts of different ways in which God responds to him. Either I'll forgive, I'll forgive, but I can't wipe the story out. I'll forgive, but the only way is if you accept, um, is if you accept uh, affliction, and maybe that's the tzarat. Here's a different thing. God says, I forgive you. So then Gavi asked for a sign. I'm not going to publicize that I forgave you in your lifetime, but during your son's life, I will. And what's that? Beautiful drashah. When Shlomo built the Beit Hamikdash, he wanted to bring the Aaron in. The Aaron had been in, in um, had gone Kiryat Yarim, and David had brought the Aaron back to Shalim, but in a tent. Shlomo wants to bring it into the Beit Hamikdash. Davku Sharim Zemazeh. The gates sealed themselves to each other. Amar So Shlomo said twenty-four songs. and he wasn't answered. Amar Sharim Rashechem, etc., etc. The whole thing, and that, by the way, is at the end of chapter 24. That's what they have to do, 24. Uh, that's in the tefillah, as it's mentioned in Divir Yamim. And he mentioned, open it up for the for the loyalty of David, your servant. Then he was answered, and the doors opened. At that point, all of David's enemies were naysayers, all their faces all turned black like the black of a pot. And everybody, and everybody then understood that God had forgiven David. So this is the promise. And notice in this entire sugya, David sinned. David pleads to be forgotten in the first take on it. David pleads to be forgotten and to have the sin kind of wiped out so nobody knows about it. And in the subsequent midrashim just to have him forgiven and uh, god does forgive him uh but there's clearly a sin there parenthetically in a related piece in sanhedrin it says that david turned to god and said how come there's elohe abraham elohe Yitzchak, elohe yaakov and not elohe david and you notice that elohe david is not part of our tefillot we have magen david but not elohe david and God said, because they were tested and they passed the test, David said, so test me. So God says, okay, I'm going to test you. And you know what? They didn't even know what the test was. You, I'm going to give you a test, which every kid in Cheder knows, which, of course, because the whole story of David and Macheva starts with, 
don't seek the peace of Ammon. That's how the whole war started, and led to everything. And uh, and he does, and he fails. And that's why in Bavel there's no Elohei David. Interesting, look at this passage from the Yerushalmi. Rabbi Ba, which is Rabbi Abba, Meshem Abba Bar Yirmi Abitfilahu Omer, Elohei David Ubonei Yerushalayim. The end of the bracha, Uvnei Yerushalayim, which we have, Bonei Yerushalayim, in Eretz Yisrael, and we have the Nuschaot from the Geniza, was Elohei David Ubonei Yerushalayim. And in Navi, meaning in in um, the brachot after the Haftarah, which we end with Magen David, it's Benavi Omer, Elohei David Matzmiach Yeshua. So that's how they would say it at the in the brachot at the end of the Haftarah, which means in Eretz Yisrael, they had a very different take. In Eretz Yisrael, their take on it was that there is Elohei David, and that either means that David, at some sense, passed some sort of test, or this whole thing about the test wasn't an issue. In the Bavel, which is our all of our tefillot, Nusach Ashkenaz, Nusach Svard, they all follow uh, the tradition in Bavel, um, does not have Elohei David anywhere, and it's all based on, again, this notion that David really failed the test. So we come back to the question of what's Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani saying when he says, Kol Amr David Chata in Olo Toa. So I want to show you, uh, before coming to uh, a suggestion as to an answer, what he's doing, I want to show you how the Rishonim dealt with this um, in their commentaries on the Parsha, meaning when you open up Mikral Kudalot and you open up Shmuel Bet, Parakud Aleph, Parakud Bet, and you see what, um, what uh, the different commentators do when describing the story of David, Batsheva, Uriah, Natan, uh, in the text, how do they define it? So take a look at Rashi. Rashi, source 13, says, Mitumata uh, is minidata, okay? Shlach to Uriah. Now watch, why does David send for Uriah? Shamit kaven ishto. That David wanted Uriah to come back and sleep with his own wife. And then Uriah will think, I assume everybody else will think that she's pregnant from him, which means that in Rashi's take here, David is coordinating a cover-up, right? And if you take a look at, at the last passage in Rashi here, that David's directive to have Uriah put up against the front, was in order to generate that Batsheva retroactively would be divorced. But that means that even walking within Rashi, what was David's first attempt? just a cover-up, and not to do anything about the adultery. Only after the cover-up didn't work, because Uriah wouldn't go, then he said, get him killed, in order that retroactively she'd be divorced. So therefore, technically, he didn't have relations with a married woman. And this is, as we saw in the Gemara, anybody who goes out to war, writes a get, that on condition that if he dies in war, that retroactively the get is valid. Okay. Uh, Mahari Kara from the same school as Rashi. Remember, Mahari Kara is a, 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 a Talmud Chaver of Rashi, right? Um, in in Pasuk Chet, uh, in Pasuk Dalad, critical. Right? We pointed this out last week when we studied the text that she was going. She had gone to the mikvah. So, which means at no point could we think that this child is Uriah's child. In other words, if Uriah stays at the front, doesn't come back, and Batsheva has a baby nine months later, then there's no way that it could have been Uriah's child because subsequent to Uriah going out to the war, she had she menstruated. So there's no way for that to happen. All right? And then in Pasuk Chet, he's told Uriah to go home and 
bathe, etc. Shratzashizakek liishto vearion teluibo. He wanted Uriah to have relations with his with his wife, and everybody will think it's Uriah's child. Okay, um, good. Now Mahari uh, Kara comes straight at David here, because in in his commentary on on Natan's words, who said, "Why did you degrade the word of God?" He says straight, "You're not allowed to have adultery. It's very simple." Right. Um, um, we're, we're, we'll we'll go further down the Radak. What does the Radak do? David Kimchi. I Let's take a look. To point out that David did not have relations with her when she was in Nida. Interesting. The adultery part we haven't taken care of, but Nida we're taking care of. He cried, "Kachami tumata." She went to the mikvah. Kamo shamar. In other words, it said she was Rochetzet, and now it tells us that that Rochetzet was actually the mikvah. He didn't violate Nida. He didn't violate Nida, he just violated adultery. And he says, Our rabbis taught us that you write this get. So therefore, David arranged for Uriah to be killed so that retroactively she's divorced. Now let's stop and take a beat here. That means David did something wrong. He slept with this married woman. But because there was an ace up the sleeve, which is if I can get her husband killed before he returns, then retroactively it's not adultery, so I'll do that, and therefore technically we're off the hook. But is that really an acceptable vehicle for getting off the hook? Right. So Rabbi Shai Ditrani, um, from uh, from southern Italy, in twelfth uh, century, said tell, uh, comments on the on the story that uh, Natan, the story of the poor man's you. He says Lotvao el al gezalishto. He says the only thing that the parable speaks about. And we talked about this last week, is about taking the wife. He said Natan la baala. Meaning, her husband had given her the divorce writ. He writes a get below tnai, meaning, meaning, unlike Rashi, who said that the get was written with a condition, if I don't return, then retroactively you're, you're divorced, he said they just divorce their wives when they leave, which means Batsheva really was single, right? So the only thing that, that David is being excoriated for here is taking. The wife, by having Uriah killed, but every woman, of course, would wait for her husband to come back. David stole her and took her. And this is his argument. And his argument here is a close support to our sugya. If she really was a married woman, why is Natan's mashal what it is? Which is that a man stole a lamb from somebody? David abal eshet ish ma dino, v'gam uriah and shame im sam otov v'fnei machama v'shayim elach lasim gvaram v'fnei machama v'nashal v'gatam. So he said. So what we, it's very hard to understand what the mashal is, if 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 indeed she really was an eshet ish. Um, uh, at the time, why didn't he just say? A man had uh, had relations with another man's wife. What's the din? Okay, uh, when when we uh, take a look at the Ralbag, 
the Rabbah also adopts the position about Kol Aulech Lechan Beit David, and you could see it in the highlighted in yellow. Um, and um, let's just read that the rest of that paragraph. So once Uriah died, retroactively, this is like Rashi, retroactively she wasn't Eshet Uriah. He raised another issue, which has to be kind of kicking in the back of our minds. Remember, David had relations with Bathsheba. And if indeed that was adultery, then how is David ever allowed to have relations with her again? After all, the rule is that if a man and a woman commit adultery, meaning a man has relations with a woman who's not who's married to another man at the time, then she's banned from her own husband, and she's also banned from the paramour. And not only that, but the baby, it's uh, and that would mean, of course, that him then marrying Bathsheba and having Shlomo is all illicit, right? Um why would God choose the, the, the Davidic line to continue dafka through the child of this union that should be illicit? So he said, therefore, it's appropriate to believe that David did not sin when he had relations with Bathsheba. Because, after all, Uriah was killed. In other words, his next relations with Bathsheba. Had David not jumped the gun, Bathsheba would have ended up being his wife anyways because that's what God wanted. And because he wanted Shlomo to be the king. So he says, that's why we have a statement in Chazal, we didn't see this inside, that really Bathsheba was somebody who was appropriate for David, but he jumped the gun. He had her as, shall we say, as an unripe fig, as the paga. Right? It was a little bit too early. Okay. So what we've seen in in, uh, taking a look at um, broadly French and one Italian commentators uh, stretching from the 11th till about the 13th century um, is um, a, a sort of um, um, a treading, a difficult position of, on the one hand, taking a look at several indications in the text that seem to support the idea that the sin was not as grievous as it seems on the face of it. First of all, because of Natan's words and what he attacks David for. Second of all, because of the fact that David's allowed to marry Bathsheba again and the, the child that they do produce afterwards becomes the next king and is beloved by God. Um, on the other hand, the simple reading of the text is, makes it very difficult. Uh, and so, therefore, the get kritut means that in a technical sense, either it was written on condition, like Rashi says, or without condition, like Rabbi Trani says, and that, um, that she was already divorced in any case, either retroactively or not, and therefore, technically, this was not adultery, and technically, he was allowed to be married to her. But the idea of having Uriah killed in order to uh, in order to make way for that is terrible. But the other piece of the puzzle is that that we can't avoid is that David clearly wanted to cover up at the beginning, which at least according to everybody except Rabbi Shai would have meant that there was adultery because he made it back. And he would have come back and slept with his wife, and nobody would have been the wiser. So we have a lot of there's a lot of tumult going on, a lot of difficulty here. 
So I want to take a look at two more sources and then make a comment. Uh, we're already uh, getting close to, to overtime here. Um, in a collection of responsa of Chachme Provence, of the sages of Provence of the 12th and uh, 13th centuries, you find this interesting tshuva that's written as a poem. So I set it up as a poem. It's one of the questions was, why is it, the famous question, why is it that Shaul lost his kingship for violating the law about Amalek and did not kill the, all the animals of Amalek? And David, who commits what seems to be much a much more heinous crime, nonetheless maintains his, his monarchy and the dynasty. And so the answer, that Shaul's decree was sealed, that his kingdom did not continue and his sin was a blemish. And David's decree was ripped up. Even though the sin of Bathsheba was significantly more bad, more heinous, and then watch this. Even though our sages turned it somehow, his judgment into a skut, they get a great reward. But you still have to read the text as you read it. And then he goes on and explains why David was forgiven and why Shaul was not forgiven, etc. And it's a fascinating piece by itself. But that line, is a critical piece. They have a great reward over the fact that they did everything they could to show David in a positive light. And none, And we'll talk about that at the end of this year. And nonetheless, you have to read the text, and the text it says what the text does. So I want to go now to 15th century Spain and Don Yitzchak Abarbanel, or Abravanel, in his commentary uh, here, um, says the following. This comment of Chachamim that Kolomer David Chata, etc., is drash. I have no response. He said, It's enough what Rav said that after all, Rebbe, who's a descendant of David, does everything he can to make David look, <coughs> look good. Meaning they had a drasha. Important one to know what he says. He said, Rebbe would turn things around because he's related to David, he's connected to David, and it's just not, but it's not the truth. How could you possibly say, David tried to do something bad, but he didn't? It says exactly what he did explicitly. How could David say chatati if he didn't sin? Of course, uh, uh, Psalm uh, 51. <coughs> Remember the Pasuk that was the proof text that David didn't sin. We commented him, that was much earlier. That doesn't keep him from sinning later. It just means that at that point, David was successful and Hashem was with him and he was close to Hashem. So certainly God was with him after he sinned and he did full tshuva. I, I just cannot 
possibly go light on David's sin. I can't ignore the straight truth. How could I accept this idea that they would write a get? So he rejects that entire idea. The pasuk, remember, that they had as a proof that they would write a get, which was at the Arubatam Tikach. He says, it's very distant from saying that. And David actually wanted Uriah to go home and then to leave in the morning. If, if she's already divorced, then how can Uriah go back? He's taking the divorce in the Shaya position that the divorce was immediate and unconditional, which would mean he's now telling Uriah to go and stay with a woman he's not married to. How could that be appropriate? And he said, um, it's, it's just like their explanation that Uriah should have died because he said, Adoni. Right? He said, how could somebody mistrust David when David says, I sinned? I'd rather have him sin grievously and be very contrite. And to say that David was cleansed because of that, because he actually did tshuva. Okay, that brings us to the close of our source material, and I'd just like to conclude with two comments, and I'll make them quick. Uh, the first is that uh, many, many years ago, I was Ocha to have a uh, conversation with uh, Professor Yehuda Elitzur Zal, who at the time was the head of the Bible department in Barilan, um, and as I mentioned in the previous shiur, was the uh, one of the founding editors of the Dot Mikra series, and I met with him and brought my quandary to him and said, as um, as a student of Gemara and my position of of uh, coming to the David and Bathsheba story really from the through the lens of this particular uh, midrash, uh, I was troubled by the clear uh, contradiction with the text, and uh, he made this following observation. He said that you know the the author of that midrash was well known as a polemicist against the early Christians. And for many years, decades, I really did not uh, look into that comment. And then uh, a number of years later, I did do a little research, and very quickly it became apparent, as you could see from the source material that we saw that's on page one, that Rabbi Yonatan did uh, do battle with the early Christians over the uh, interpretation of texts. And Professor Alitsur then pointed out to me uh, something that is uh, quite well known, but was not well known to me as a young yeshiva guy at the time, that one of the founding um, beliefs, shall we call it, of the uh, of the early Christian church was the uh, notion of uh, of the uh, unique position of uh, their leader as uh, as the first person to be fully redeemed. And the notion is that all humans beforehand died sinfully and did not make it to heaven. And therefore, one of their founding myths was that as soon as uh, he was killed on the cross, the first thing he did was to go down to purgatory and bring up Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, etc., all of the uh, all of our uh, heroes uh, and the spiritual giants of our history to bring them up to heaven because it was only with his death that they could be redeemed. And so in engaging with the church fathers, with the early founders of the church about this topic, 
Um, the Jews would say, uh, why do you think that, uh, that they were not in heaven? Then they would point to particular events because everybody has an event in their life they can be pointing to, and at least if you're looking for it, to find something wrong. Uh, and certainly uh, our tradition does not withhold that at all. And I said, see, they sinned. They were imperfect. And it took the perfect human being to bring them up to heaven. And so our response would be, well, take a look at the stories that you record yourselves in the Gospels about Jesus. And you see that uh, he also sinned uh, and was subject to temptation, etc. So he was imperfect. And they would uh, darshan him. They would find ways to read the text creatively so that it would make him look perfect. And I still remember fondly Professor Elitzur's words. He looked at me, Say, you know how to read the text in a creative way to make him look perfect? We can do the same thing. And he maintained that that was sort of the animating spirit behind the kol haomer blank chata, eno elatoeb. But there is a, a broader issue here, which is something that we have to keep in mind whenever we're looking at midrashim, uh, that reconstruct the lives of characters uh, in Tanakh, both heroes and villains. And that is that uh, for two broad reasons which intersect, we have a tradition about particular characters to read their lives as worthy of emulation and as uh, positive role models, and others to read their lives in the opposite direction. Um, and though, as I said, it comes from two different directions. One is clearly Midrashic, um, uh, tradition, uh, a Masorah, which is that our Masorah about Avraham is that uh, Avraham is uh, is a hero, and that our Masorah about Moshe is that Moshe is a hero. I mean, we don't really need to rely on that, but just as an example, but also about certain uh, less known characters uh, that uh, we look at Yitro as a hero, for instance. And on the other hand, the tradition about certain other characters is to see them uh, as very negative, including characters that we don't have anything explicit about in Tanakh, like Eliphaz, uh, Esav's son, but to read him as as a villain. And so therefore what happens is the Midrashim build upon that and then identify in the text things that we could find in the case of the heroes that could build up their heroism, and in the case of the villains, something that could also build up their villainy. Um, this, and again, it comes from two different directions. One is a Midrashic tradition, clearly. Second of all is the text itself. The fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu introduces himself to Moshe as Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a breed that lasts forever with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov is all that we need. And we understand now that these are giants and that if we find um, a behavior that, uh, that any of them engaged in which is problematic, that we are to understand it in one of two ways. And that's really the dispute that, that happens here in our sugya, both in the different statements in the Gemara that we saw in the Midrashim, and also in the Mefarshim that we saw, in the commentaries that we saw. Do we read um, the greatness of David as his being unblemished? And to take the pasuk, Vayhi David maskil l'chol rachav, Vayhi David l'chol rachav maskil v'adonaimo, or do we read David's greatness in the fact that even though he sinned, his tshuva was so powerful and so expressive and so uh, and so eloquent, and we look at Pitilim nun aleph, and uh, and accepted upon himself such tribulations in order to be uh, to be forgiven, as we see the Gemara in Sanhedrin, is that his greatness? 
And that's really the position of Ravanel. Ravanel's position is not to excoriate David, but to see David's greatness and how he contended with his own fallibility, as opposed to Rebbe Yehud Anasi, who interpreted David's actions in a way that, that made him more blameless uh, than, uh, than praised for his tshuva, even though Rebbe will certainly have to accept, as the, it's clear from the text and clear from the Gemara itself, that David's actions here were not uh, totally without blame. Bottom line is, Shlomo said in, in his wisdom in, in Sefer Kohelet, Ein adam Human beings are fallible. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody sins. And a person is not judged based on the perfection of their character, but rather on the perfection of their character. What I mean by that is, a person is not judged based on the fact that their character is uh, without fault, but rather that they perfect their character, that they take their uh, fallibility, they take their weaknesses, they take their vulnerability, they take their actions which are, uh, which are found wanting, and that they then uh, do tshuva, uh, earnestly, uh, and uh, perhaps we'll conclude by just pointing out that David comes from a, such a tradition's own family. David is a descendant of Peretz, and Peretz, if you remember, was born from the union of da- Yehuda and Tamar. And in that case, Yehuda himself became the stalwart Baal Tshuva, but when Tamar brought the Simanim before him, he said, it's Sadka Mimeni. And so our Midrashic tradition, which is broad, still is driven by a very clear picture of David as one of our heroes who is beloved. HaKadosh Baruch Hu had a breed with him forever that he would be king and that his children would be the kings and that the leaders of Am Yisrael come from the house of David. Uh, and yet the bottom line question that cooks in the sugya is, so how do we then look at the text that describe David as engaging in inappropriate or sinful problematic behavior and again, they're divided, whether we find technical loopholes that, uh, that make uh, David's actions, even though intending to be sinful, nonetheless technically uh, acceptable or technically uh, valid, or do we see him as, as, the, uh, as some Rishonim will take it and some positions in the Gemara as having sinned? And then what's really st- what really stands out as the sterling picture of his character is his tshuva. In any case, we've engaged in, uh, in an in-depth study of the Midrash here uh, and hopefully gotten a good uh, handle on uh, sort of an introduction to the study of one particular kind of agada. Uh, and we will pick it up in later weeks. Uh, there was a special request, even though it's not in the pages that we're studying right now, to take up the topic of early Shabbat, which is very common for us during this season. And so we will uh, deal with that next week. Uh, and hopefully soon we'll be able to actually get together in person and study Torah together.